The Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, has been attacking the crypto industry, largely trying to regulate by enforcement. We've seen huge actions against companies like Coinbase and Ripple. For most companies, it's impossible to defend themselves because they don't have the money to do so, so they just settle. For some other companies, they need the war chest to go on the attack and to push back against the SEC. The lawyers at Paul Hastings have been handling a number of these cases. I spoke with three of them today, Eric, Nick, and Lisa, about their involvement, both for-profit and not-for-profit, in defending the crypto industry and taking on regulators like the SEC. You do not want to miss this one. That's dope. I can say that it's never a particularly comfortable situation to be in a Zoom room with three lawyers. It <laughs> <laughs> usually means you've done something bad or you're or you're in trouble. <laughs> but in this case, uh, actually in a room with three lawyers or in a Zoom room with three lawyers. Well, I think the Zoom right. room has become the new room, right? <laughs> so, uh, I mean, sure to the people who are watching context, uh, we did all sit in a room in advance of this in Austin at Consensus, so we we have met in person perhaps one of you should just give us some context as to paul hastings involvement in the crypto industry what kind of cases you guys are taking i think everybody understands it's a really good time to be a lawyer who understands crypto after what happened in 2022 so what is your firm doing in the industry at the moment I can jump in. I don't want to step on Lisa and Eric, um, but uh, so you, you actually have a nice representative sampling of Paul Hastings lawyers here with the three of us because we, we come at this in different uh, ways. So in, in law firm speak, I'm a litigator, uh, former SEC enforcement trial attorney. And so I have been since before the Dow report being asked the question, well, what's SEC enforcement think of topic XYZ? That is very different than the way that Eric and Lisa come at this, although, I mean, obviously they can describe their own practices, but the way I see their practices, Eric is like the the brains of keeping track of uh, the, the both theoretical and legal aspects of this from a transactional and you know, before you get in trouble with the SEC uh, perspective. And Lisa's uh, a good addition here for the three of us because she kind of bridges the both both of those sort of practice areas. Um, yeah. So Eric and Lisa, I've probably totally maligned your practices and and not done you justice, but that's the way I kind of see the, the three of us um, and our practices. Great, great, great setup. I mean, so you know, we've been involved since the early days of relatively early days of crypto, not the very very beginning, right? But um, you know, working in particular with a lot of the trading platforms and kind of intermediaries within the space as they're trying to figure out, okay, you know, we have this new thing, crypto, digital assets, what is it? What buckets does it fall in from a regulatory perspective? How do we, you know, how do we do transactions? You know, kind of, how do we need to be regulated? How do we build businesses going forward? And so that's where we kind of focused on from a, from a, from, from the early days. Yeah, and so um, I'll jump in. So as Nick and Eric were saying, 
We generally help advise companies just kind of navigating all the regulation around crypto and blockchain. I feel like there's a new headline every other day. So you got to keep up to date and not only just the facts of like what's going on, but also what it means. Like if the SEC issues a complaint, does that mean it's now a rule or law that everyone has to follow? So it's really good to understand all the facts that are going on, but also like what it means for certain companies and whether what's going on applies to them. And so we generally help large companies like exchanges and also Web3 startups and founders and investors just kind of navigate the regulation in the space. Uh, Lisa, you just made one of the most important points I think that is missed is that a Wells notice or an opinion from a regulator does not make it law. It doesn't mean the judicial system agrees. I mean, Nick, you were a, a litigator for the SEC, so you probably know better than anyone else. But it's not like the SEC always wins just because they have an opinion, correct? Uh, absolutely. Um, and that, that goes for this, you know, digital asset space, but but every space. Um, and I've, you know, seen that in issue after issue where the SEC takes a position and it will be their position until they lose in court. And even after they lose in court, they may continue to assert that that's the position, except for that one court or that one judge. Um, so, yeah, that's there's a big difference between the SEC stating its position and a final adjudication by a judge or a jury on that same issue. And I think there's a perception in the crypto space, certainly from this side, that the regulation is unclear, difficult to navigate, even as Gary Gensler says things like, come in and register, it's easy, come talk to us. And then there's no way really to come in and register, there's no framework to do so. How do you advise a client on how to get regulated if there's really no clear regulatory framework for this specific asset class? So I think, uh, I mean, what we try to do, right, is sort of, sort of there, is, there is no clear framework. And despite, you, you hear all this, the rules are clear, the law is clear, right? I mean, it's like the, uh, it's like the perfect phone call, right? I mean, it, it's, it's um, you, you know, and, and you know, maybe you could argue it's clear, but it's not clear how it applies to the facts, which is why there are lots of lawyers involved in this industry, right? Um, we have a new asset class that, um, you know, is built to do something. It's not only a vehicle for speculation, although there's obviously speculation. And so, but what we try to do when we talk to clients is, okay, well, let's think about what regulators actually care about, right? They care about protecting people, protecting retail consumers, you know, avoiding money laundering, you know, kind of things that sort of, if you kind of step back, regardless of where this might fall, let's just sort of channel like, okay, let's try to be a good citizen. What should we be doing to make sure people are making informed decisions, right? And so the kind of more you can kind of, kind of put things in that position, I think you're, you're kind of in a, in, you know, kind of, kind of better, but it, it's, it's complicated, right? Because people are building things against a backdrop that was put into shape long before any of these assets existed, right? So we have this legacy framework, we have something new and, and the, the legacy framework hasn't caught up with, with the current world. Having the three of us here is great because you're going to get different answers to that question, Scott. So I, Eric's answer is the, the better answer probably, but I'm a litigator. So I look at the world differently. Um, and I think, uh, and, and obviously um, the advice Eric gives to people to stay out of trouble is the right, right advice. Right. But inevitably, people do get into trouble, and I think the best, or the best from a from a certainty perspective, the best information discovery mechanism in this space is litigation. Um, and 
that's how we're going to find out what the answers are. Uh, that's not to say people should, you know, look forward to litigation or, I mean, what it, Ripple just said, they spent 200 million on their uh, case or they're going to spend that amount. I mean, who, who has the time or energy to do that sort of thing on a routine basis? But in terms of getting a clear answer um, as a litigator, you know, a person who sees the world through those eyes, I think that's the best way to get clarity here. Yeah, you said who has the time or energy, but the real question is who has the war chest, right? And then the answer there was Ripple. Uh, the answer certainly wasn't library credits. And now the answer is Coinbase, right? And so I think... Um, there's a number of ways to view it. I, I think the industry probably is fearful of being attacked by regulators. But if they're going to poke one bear, I think the industry would say, please let Coinbase fight on behalf of, of all of us to some degree, right? But the problem, to, to your point, as litigators, that most people literally just can't afford to sue the SEC. Even if, they're, even if they wanted to, even if they're not afraid of it, even if they're willing to take that on, who has hundreds of millions of dollars to to do that. So Lisa, isn't that a huge problem for a smaller project that you might be consulting if they do come, you know, end up on the wrong side of this? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why um, a lot of projects ask, like, why are all these people or companies that the SEC goes after? Why are they settling? And it's really that simple. Um, everyone would love to fight to the end, but it's, it's so expensive. And the length of litigation, you file the complaint, you allege what you think the other party did is wrong. And it could take years of discovery and fighting back and forth and motions before it ever gets to a judge or jury to make the final determination. So a lot of options for companies is, is limited. Usually you can really only settle unless you have the war chest to, to take it to the end. And a lot of them can't afford the settlement either. I mean, speaking of library credits, I think they just had theirs reduced from 20 million to like 111,000. Those aren't the exact numbers, but something in that ballpark, which I was surprised that the SEC actually reduced it, but they literally went on and admitted, these guys have no money left. <laughs> Right. After fighting us, we're going to get our hundred thousand dollar penalty. I mean, that's not going to encourage a lot of people to defend themselves. Yeah. And sticking with library for, for just a minute. So um, I, I know this topic's going to come up eventually, but one of the one of my reactions to this dynamic that no one has the resources to fight the SEC or very few people do was to create this nonprofit um, that we'll probably talk about later, the Investor Choice Advocates Network, 501c3. And it's designed to jump in where in situations where there aren't um, sufficient resources to make the arguments that we'd all like to see made, or because the defendant in a particular case is compromised in a way, whether they have resources or not. So anyway, in the library case, we submitted a, an amicus brief uh, in a post-judgment brief arguing uh, to the judge that he should consider uh, factors that we raised um, in addition to the, the factors that that library raised. And so one of the aspects that I uh, uh, latched onto in the SEC's, uh, what they just filed in, in court that you're alluding to, Scott, where they reduced the, the amount of money they were seeking, they also tweaked the injunctive relief they were seeking. So normally, an injunction in one of these cases says it's a, it's an obey the law injunction. You shall not violate the law in the future, which in the case of library seems a little ridiculous given the status of the company. Um, and the SEC always asks for that remedy. Uh, doesn't matter the status of the company, but in that filing they just made earlier, was it earlier this week or, or last week? Um, they tweaked it a little bit. They said we want, because they know the judge is reluctant to enter an empty obey the law injunction that just is meaningless. 
And so the, the SEC said, well, we'd like that injunction, but only until the company is dissolved or destroys its tokens, um, which seems like a minor point. But in the scheme of SEC uh, remedies that they seek in these kinds of cases, that's kind of a big concession on their part. So we'll see what the judge does. Yeah, I was literally speaking with Jeremy Kaufman, Kaufman randomly today, obviously, who was the CEO of Library. And he made the point, which he's made every time we speak, seemingly, which is, I was the guy who actually tried to go in and register. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm the best example of someone who brought a PowerPoint presentation into the SEC, showed them exactly what I was doing so that they could sue me, right? So, I mean, seeing that, why would anyone ever even want to try, I think, is the question. I'm, I'm sure there is a pathway, and, and I, I see, uh, Eric, you, you want to answer that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely been the frustration, right? Because um, there are so many people that say, hey, regularly, I want to be regular. I want to know what the pathway is, right? Just tell me what the roadmap is that I need to follow to implement something, right? And, and then people will follow it, right? But the frustration has been is that, to your earlier point, everything is clear, right? And and we're not doing anything, right? Whereas if you look at any other areas like the SEC, for example, right, where they'll approach different industries, different new products, they'll kind of put out you know concept releases, changing things. There's been no movement at all, other than to say everything is perfectly clear. Come in and talk to us. And having been involved in some of those conversations, nothing really happens. Yeah, I just laugh because everything is clear and the CFTC and SEC can't even agree on the, what, what these assets are. <laughs> right. Or even if you like you look in like like New York State with like ETH, where you have one regulator kind of basically kind of green listing uh, ETH. Right. And you have another regulator saying it's a security in the same state. Let's talk about the non-for-profit really quickly, because that's extremely interesting. Where does the actual funding for that come from when somebody needs to come to you to defend themselves or or to actually to, you know, go on the offensive? So it's still uh, relatively new. We're just over a year old and we are still operating as an all volunteer organization. So um, I mean, you're looking at three of the people who've put in some time uh, in filing amicus briefs. So I think, you know, we filed amicus briefs in uh, Ripple, Library, the Wahi Insider Trading case. Uh, we just filed one in support of Coinbase's writ. Uh, I'm probably missing something. We're about to file a couple more in the next few weeks. So right now it's a shoestring budget. We have had a few donations from a couple of people. None from, well, actually, that's not true. We've got some crypto industry uh, uh, support, but really shoestring budget. We're trying to expand the efforts and uh, do a lot more. But right now, it's all volunteer. Well, Lisa, why the passion for doing that? I mean, obviously, your time is valuable, and it means you must have some deep-seated belief here, either that the industry is important or that there's something negative happening on the other side that's worth fighting. Yeah, so like as we were saying before, not everyone can fight against the SEC, and I think it's a really important issue for us to argue on points that affect not even just one particular company, but could affect the entire digital asset industry and the entire market industry beyond the digital asset industry. And so like one interesting thing that the SEC has done in some instances is, for example, in the Wahi complaint and recently in the Bittrex complaint, they're going after another target. But in the complaint, they allege that nine digital assets or six digital assets 
our securities and they're not even bringing the complaint against the actual issuers with a chance to respond. And then if those parties settle, which is a high probability, then those issues never get litigated. It's just kind of out there that they think that these tokens are securities and a court hasn't necessarily agreed with them. Yeah, I mean, that's like mafia tactics. We just name you, you come in, you write us a check and you go about your life. It really right. is curious how they seemingly name seven random coins every single time. Yeah. Like eventually they'll have enough uh, enough of these uh, enforcement actions that they'll name everything in the market and they'll all be deemed securities. But that is really interesting. Why do you think that they approach it that way? Well, I'm sure that they, they want to set precedent. On one hand, it's interesting to see what the SEC is considering and kind of confirms our analysis that we do internally of what, like, for example, marketing statements they find as high risk or using terms that traditionally describe securities. But for example, in the recent Bittrex complaint, they were pretty aggressive and mentioned marketing statements that were pretty mild that necessarily wouldn't rise to the level, in my opinion anyway, that would cause something to be red flagged. Um, so, I mean, who knows why the SEC is doing anything, but it does seem like it's a possibility that if they're not bringing it against the issuers, they're not necessarily going to have to buy or litigate against these tokens. They just get to make these statements in a court document and no one fights it. I think another, I totally agree, Lisa. And I think another um, uh, aspect of this is strategy. Uh, in other words, in the Wahi complaint, they say, here are nine tokens we think are securities, but there are probably as many as 25 and maybe more, but we're not going to tell you what they are. So um, Hester Peirce, uh, I don't think she coined this term, but used the term in one of her dissents uh, when she talked about strategic ambiguity. Um, and so I think there is an element of strategic ambiguity. You're, you're a federal government agency that, uh, believe it or not, does have limited resources. They still have to deal with mutual funds and traditional brokers and all that sort of So how do you go about discouraging activity without spending the time to alleviate every case? Well, just keep telling people, go read Howie and you can figure it out yourself. Meanwhile, we're going to allude to, you know, these these possible uh, tokens that are not in compliance. So I think strategic ambiguity is part of why they, you know, allege things without actually going out and, and pursuing things. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear when you watch Gensler on the floor of Congress answering the question, is Ethereum a security or not? And he continues to remain strategically ambiguous, even when, you know, directly asked that question. But to your point, being vague allows them sort of to continue to just, you know, name a few coins each time and eventually I think it'll be clear that they view everything as a security. But what I find interesting, though, is that they've somewhat, with all this enforcement action, I think they've galvanized the crypto community. Maybe they underestimate just how much wealth there is in the crypto community, but they've galvanized them even behind companies like Ripple, which were, let's be honest, largely hated within the crypto community. I mean, Ripple was the most probably polarizing company in crypto, but now everybody wants to see them win just on behalf of everyone. So it could have some unintended consequences of actually bringing the community together to fight against them. Yeah. And, you know, and it's interesting. So to that point, you know, early on, if the SEC made an allegation that a particular token was a security, you would see exchanges kind of dropping it, acting very quickly in response to the SEC's action. Now, every time no one comes out, well, people say, well, this is just an allegation. And I don't know we call it regulatory fatigue or um there's kind of just a different posture i think in the industry in general and i mean 
but to, to be fair, I mean, I, I don't want to be this all anti-SEC or, you know, you know, the SEC, the CFT, they do very important work, right? Very important things in terms of protecting people. And a lot of people are kind of motivated by the right things. It just feels like things have kind of gone off the rails a bit here, right? Yeah. And so that's why it's important for, um, you know, the crypto industry, the legal industry to, to kind of push back. And to kind of steer things in the direction of kind of you know the rule of law let, let's be reasonable about things and you know like you know organizations like ICANN, where they're kind of okay here, here's a point that's sometimes important not only to the crypto industry it's important to the kind of broader financial markets right that we do yeah. this in the right way i think we're past the wild west mentality of nothing should be regulated and we don't want regulation and crypto should exist outside the framework i think that the industry is very pragmatic now people think we need regulation we need clarity to be able to operate. So that has been maybe an unintended positive consequence as well, because we do need regulation. It just has to make sense. Yeah. I think I, to your point, I don't think people dislike the SEC inherently. I think that this industry dislikes this SEC. <laughs> right. Actually, I remember people being very excited about Clayton when he was at the SEC and the crypto industry and, and the language they were using. And even the OCC had Brian Brooks and he was talking about replacing swift transactions with stable coins and custody and banks so a lot of it's clearly political right i mean which which side is in power and which agency you know who's running the agency at any given time is that accurate i mean could even just regime change change the entire outlook of this process lisa you were about to say something no, no, i'll leave this to you and eric she wanted to answer something well, that was softball, and then I came in hot. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know, there's a lot of, of what the SEC does, like Eric points out, is is everyone supports um, uh, anti-fraud uh, actions, for example, Ponzi schemes. Those happen in traditional finance. Those happen in the digital asset space. Um, the SEC should absolutely be going after people who are conducting Ponzi schemes uh, and stealing people's money uh, through fraudulent representations. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of disagreement about that. So, um, and I, you know, I, I think um, the Clayton era SEC, you know, they put out the Dow report. They did put out, you know, Corpfin at that time did put out some very limited no action letters, which is a tool that I think they could be using a lot more. Um, so I think there was some movement in the direction of establishing. So what we're missing is establishing the SEC's acknowledgement of the limits of its own jurisdiction. That's what we don't see. I think we started to see that. Um, but now that's just like that's we're, we're never going to hear the SEC acknowledge that if you design a token in this way that has these characteristics, you are outside the SEC's jurisdiction. I just, we're not going to uh, we're not going to hear that from the SEC. Even within the SEC, though, there's dissension. You brought up Hester Peirce earlier. She clearly disagrees with the tack taken by Gensler and, and other commissioners. She's actually repeatedly proposed something that seems extremely reasonable, which is safe harbor. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with it. But effectively, let a company come in, register, give them a period of one, two, three years. I think three is what she was proposing to prove that they are not a security and are sufficiently decentralized and let them go about their lives. Doesn't something like that, I'm not saying that her framework is perfect, but doesn't it make sense when we're dealing with a, you know, 2024 technology to not use the 1930 framework and at least give a chance for people to make it work and, and to be compliant? I mean, ab absolutely. And I think what she proposed or some, some variation of that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, 
the again the the unique thing here is unlike your like a traditional stock or bond where you just buy it hold it hope you make money right um it's designed to do something right and so if something you need to kind of you, you need to raise money you need to kind of have time for it adopted to implement it so that the product or service aspect of things is more salient that makes a lot of sense because this is something that is totally unique compared to what's come before right and recognizing that and then also from a policy perspective you know you, you can then have some influence as an sec and sort of what that looks like what kind of disclosures are made so people are making informed decisions and if if there's fraud or other things that there's recourse for that right so that's i think the great frustration is finding a way not just through like enforcement action but let's let, let's work together and do something that achieves the objectives that we all share right um and at the same time allows people to develop and innovate yeah, it shouldn't, like, as Eric was saying, it's, it would be really great to allow companies to grow here. I mean, I, what, something that I'm seeing recently is that a lot of companies are worried to put all their money into companies and building in the U.S. to have the possibility of being shut down by a regulator. So there are a lot of questions of, like, is it worth moving offshore? What does that look like? You know, and uh, we usually, you know, advise people that if you are trying to move fully offshore, then it's possible that you wouldn't necessarily be able to interact with the U.S. market. And so people and companies are in a tough place because they want to be in the U.S. and they want to follow the regulation and do the right thing, but they just don't really feel that they have the ability to in this moment. I mean, Coinbase, they're not moving offshore. I think that's a misrepresentation of what's happening, but they're certainly hedging their bets or establishing a presence offshore, or maybe it's just political theater and they're showing the regulator that they would be willing to leave. I don't, I don't know what it is, but even Galaxy Digital, Mike Novogratz, who arguably is one of the biggest Bitcoin bulls of American politics, you know, supporter moving offshore. So to your point, that's happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And and uh, it, even if it's just uh, optics, a lot of people have no intention of dealing certainly with this regulator at this point in time. And my fear then is that this industry moves so fast that by the time we have any clarity or anything sensible, the industry will be so far gone past the United States and it'll just be happening offshore exclusively. So, and that makes me really sad, actually. So growing up in Silicon Valley, right, we attract the, you know, many of the best and the brightest from, from throughout the world, right? And they come here, build great things, innovate, and it's great for America, right? It's great for, for the world, right? And now, I mean, I'm sure we all know people that have, you know, it's kind of smart, talented people that have left the U.S., right? And these, this, this is not just incorporating an entity offshore. They're kind of building, designing, hiring people, uh, opening new markets, and all doing that outside of the United States, right? Which all is all to the detriment to, you know, innovation that could be occurring here uh, that, that's not. And, and those things are hard to reverse if they last, you know, could go on for too long. And none of this is going to stop Americans from buying crypto, by the way. Well, and none of this is going to stop the SEC from asserting jurisdiction. Right. I mean, I don't want to pour cold water on the idea that moving offshore. I mean, I, I agree with what Lisa and Eric said. Like, this is unfortunate if if what happened, if, if in response to the SEC's policy, people decide they're going to take their uh, innovative ideas offshore. But the SEC... Uh, thinks that it has worldwide jurisdiction, particularly if there are U.S. investors participating. Um, we're we're working on a, a brief right now that talks about um, you know Reg S exclusions to the uh, uh, registration requirements. 
the SEC thinks that it has jurisdiction. I mean, and, you know, if you're in South Korea, we've got jurisdiction, you know, extradite people to the U.S., not to the South Korea. Um, you're in Hong Kong, we have jurisdiction. So uh, it, 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 the offshore movement, I think the SEC has uh, what they believe are uh, tools to address that. We'll see. I mean, we've seen them go after plenty of people offshore just for allowing an American with a VPN or something to, or who's not accredited to participate in a sale of something. But interestingly, it should be noted, though, that American citizen, as of yet, those people have not in any way really been targeted, right? I mean, an American can generally participate in whatever they want. It's the platform that allows them to that's generally been pursued by the regulator. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is accurate. Yeah, from the investor perspective, um, uh, it would be it would be an aggressive case for the SEC to go after an investor for like aiding and abetting uh, a token creator. Right, which uh, is why just circling back to the point I made just before, which is it's not going to stop Americans from, particip- from participating if these offshore entities allow those Americans to participate. Right. So it doesn't even really solve the problem of consumer protection, right? I mean, I hate to get on a high horse about it, but we all saw what happened last year, right? Consumers were not protected, and now the bad actors are being somewhat protected in Chapter 11, right? So, I mean, maybe there will be punishments down the road, obviously, SBF, I think, is a unique case. But I think it's frustrating to be an American citizen, maybe lost money on a platform. There were no disclosures. There was no transparency as to what those platforms were doing with the money. And now the regulator steps in to punish but not protect. So isn't it really the case that what the SEC should maybe be focusing on is those disclosures and the transparency? Because as long as the investor knows what they're spending their money on or where they're putting their money and what the risks are, that really is what this should be all about. It's my opinion, but. Uh, absolutely, no, that's, that's the fundamental, like, that's what the securities laws are about, right? Here here in the US, right? It's it's sort of like provide the right disclosures, let people make their own decisions, right? And when you lose control of that by, by essentially kind of shutting everything down, right? And just going kind of the enforcement route, um, you lose that influence, right? And the reality is also is that the traditional, you know, much of the tra- kind of traditional disclosure regime for securities, traditional securities is totally different than what's relevant to someone who's purchasing a digital asset, yeah, right? And so we need to recognize that difference, right? And so that people get the right information, right? And that we kind of have the ability to influence um, and protect people in the right way. And if we just kind of push everything outside the U.S. Uh, by not make, give, providing a path within the U.S., then 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 you end up with a worse result from protecting the people that you're mandated to serve. Yeah, I think FTX proved that. It's interesting that security has somewhat just become a four-letter word, certainly for the crypto industry. I mean, it shouldn't be a bad thing to be deemed a security, correct? I mean, in theory, that should actually be a good thing, and it's just not viewed that way now. Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends. Like, like, yeah, if, if it falls in a security bucket, for, for sure, right? right. And as long as there's kind of a, a path around that, right? And there are things that I think fall outside of the security bucket, right? And, you know, but... Um, you know, again, it's sort of like if, if we're, we're we're creating a world where whatever it is, right, it can work and people are informed and people are protected and, and innovation can flourish, that should be the goal rather than just saying everything is perfect as it is and everyone is not in compliance. 
And it's so true. In plenty of other industries, being a security is just an everyday matter. No one blinks an eye. And then in the digital asset industry, because of all this stuff that comes with it, everyone is trying not to be a security in any way they can, because if they are a security, they know they're going to be regulated by the SEC and they have to register, but there really is no path to registration at this moment. So it is so funny that just like in this particular industry, because of everything going on, like security is definitely a four letter word. It's 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 just crazy to me. The whole thing is mind-boggling. I make your head spin, Nick. I just you have something no, to say. No, I mean there there are worse things than being a security, obviously, yeah. which I guess the implication of your comments got, but like, do you want to be regulated by the bank regulators? I'm not sure that's a step up. Um it is worse. interesting. I think there's a general view, certainly among the regulatory bodies, that your thing, whatever it is, must fall into one regulatory bucket or another. Um, and so I think it's interesting to think about, um, and I, I don't know how practical it is to think about this, but is there a space that falls between the regulatory bodies? You're not, you're not a commodity, you're not a banking instrument, you're not a security. I think once upon a time, there were a lot of people who felt that crypto could fall between the regulatory bodies. Sure. I don't, I don't know whether that's a prevailing view anymore, but does I, that imply you know. that we need a regulator specifically for this industry? See, I think that, uh, frankly, I think that's an echo chamber narrative because that's uh, implying that we're way bigger than we are. Uh, <laughs> uh, an entire a market that globally has barely a trillion dollar market cap is a blip, right? So I would love to say, yeah, give us our own regulator that makes sense, but like. That is just not. I, I would rather see, so that's not what I was suggesting or, or hoping for. I would rather see a sort of sandbox, and there were people who talked about this early on, a sort of sandbox area where you anyone who enters goes in on a fully disclosed basis. Look, what we're doing here is not regulated by any of the regulatory bodies, um, but, you know, as the name of I can suggest, investor choice, if you want to choose to participate in this area, high risk. We're not overseen by anybody. I'd love to see a sandbox uh, creation like that, um, sort of a free enterprise zone where you're not, not yeah, under the Vegas. Phone. I mean, we have Vegas <laughs> in the lottery, right? It's not like we don't allow people to make risky decisions with their money. Right, right. In a regulated capacity to some degree, right? Maybe it's a state regulator, yeah. but still we allow the lottery and, and casinos. I don't, I don't see how... Now, listen, to be fair, like we have tens of thousands of definitely unregistered securities in the crypto space. I mean, we have meme coins that are going left and right, frogs and dogs and turtles and penguins and, and whatever else. So the optics aren't always great coming from our industry. And I think that probably does weaken the case for the strong, good actors to some degree. You wonder yeah. why, I mean, I, you know, I think there, you know, like, you know, not to get into specifics, I, I don't necessarily agree with everything being on enriched securities, right? But, you know, not everything. Like coins. there are a lot of, there's actually really, for certain mean coins, I don't want to make a global statement. There's actually a pretty good argument that they're not a security because they actually do nothing and there's nothing behind them. Right yeah, now, there, there you they, go. So literally just lottery tickets. Absolutely. Are they potential risky and dangerous for Consumers and retail, absolutely, right? But it doesn't make it a security. I guess poker chips aren't securities, right? So <laughs> right. I said, Lisa, you had a comment. Uh, yeah, just kind of on the comment of 
something that Nick had mentioned that everyone is so focused on the SEC, but it is interesting to remember that there are a lot of other regulators. And so something that has been talked about recently, especially with stable coins, is if there are banking regulators involved, would you rather be regulated by a bank regulator or the SEC, which is kind of a tough question, but it is interesting to like remember outside of the scope of all the different regulators that are out there and is really the SEC the worst one. It does seem like there was actually a push from the crypto industry in the Sam Bankman fried era towards the CFTC. It was viewed that that was going to be the more favorable regulator. We didn't want to touch the bank regulators and the SEC was a big scary monster. And we have seen the CFTC come out and say, listen, Bitcoin and Ethereum are commodities. And they even listed stable coins as commodities. That I found curious, to be quite honest. I don't know if you guys have an opinion on that, but uh, that seems strange. Well, I mean, stable coins are interesting because they could fall into so many different buckets. You know, like, so obviously bank regulators may even want to regulate that, right? The SEC may want to say, hey, this is more like a money market fund. So we think we should regulate it through that that lens, Right. Um, state money trans, you know, state state authorities, you know, because as like a prepaid card, right? And then the CFTC is sort of a commodity, like a currency, right? And so it's like it's a perfect example of the complexity in the space in terms of you could draw these lines in various different places and make arguments in different ways depending on the facts and circumstances. But what we really need are just someone to type decide where the bright lines are, right? Let's create some clarity, and then then we can kind of focus on what the next steps are, right? Obviously, as Lisa mentioned, that's there's there's some efforts in Congress to do that. I'm very skeptical of that going forward. Um, but you know that that's what we really need. It, it seems like the the SEC CFTC line that you're describing, Eric, that would be an easy place to start. Maybe not easy, <laughs> but uh, a good place to start because outside of the crypto space, the SEC and CFTC already do that sort of line drawing. I mean, there are instruments that where it's not clear whose jurisdiction it falls within, they have gotten together and they talk about, okay, this one's going to be CFTC, this one's going to be SEC. Uh, and, and they've had disagreement in this space, as we saw after the Wahi uh, insider trading case was filed, it was a CFTC commissioner said, hold on. Um, so that, I mean, that, that seemed the SEC CFTC line ought to be a good place to start to draw a line. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Like you said, there's precedent wow. for that, right? And there are things where the SEC and CFTC get together and say, okay, this falls in this bucket, right? Um, you know, you know, there obviously appears to be some competition in terms of who has authority over what, right? Which makes it difficult, which is why in an ideal world, right, we have Congress clarify that, right? But that's that's in my ideal world, which is not likely to happen anytime soon. It is tough, especially because of people in Congress, they have so many things on their plate, like crypto and digital asset isn't the number one thing that they need to regulate. I mean, of course, unless there's like a big news headline, which happens every once in a while, it seems recently. Um, but other than that, it, it is going to be tough to catch everyone up to speed. It's not really an easy un industry to understand and definitely not easy to legislate. So I think that it probably will take a lot longer than people would like for there to be legislation. But on the other hand, it is kind of good because if a bad news headline comes out and then that Congress can just pass a law, it probably wouldn't be very favorable to the industry. So in one sense, it is good to take some time and really understand it before there's laws created about it. Yeah, everybody wants uh, Congress to be clear on crypto, but we don't want them to be clear right now after FDX and SBF, <laughs> right? I mean, we want them to 
forget about that. Let that sort of wash out and then come back rationally. I really do think that's a huge problem is just how much egg there is on the face of certain regulators and legislators because they met with him or they supported took money, right? I mean, whatever it is, you just, the reputational risk now of saying anything positive about crypto, even if you would say it, you know, quietly is just too, too large. I want to circle back though to Coinbase. You guys said that you submitted a writ, I believe, in support of, of their action. Can you talk maybe more about what's going on with Coinbase, where that stands? They obviously had the Wells notice. There's rumor that enforcement action is coming, but it hasn't come yet. And Coinbase is pushing back. So I think it's pretty confusing for people as to what's happening there. I'm happy to take that one. So, um, so Coinbase last year, um, the SEC has a, a mechanism by which anyone can petition for the SEC to make rules. Uh, and if you go there, all, all the rule making petitions are publicly available on the SEC's website. So last year, Coinbase petitioned the SEC for rulemaking and its petition said there's lack of clarity. A lot of things we're talking about here. Please, please <laughs> create rules in the digital asset space. So, so they submitted that petition last year and then nothing. Uh, no response to the petition, no response to the petition. Um, um, and, and then uh, what they did recently, which you know your, your viewers will already be aware of, is they went to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, a federal appellate court, and, and asked the court for an order requiring the SEC to either grant their petition for rulemaking or deny their petition for rulemaking. They really said, we don't care what the, res what the response is. Yes, no, up, down, just give us an answer. You didn't answer us. So, um, so we filed uh, an amicus brief on behalf of ICANN uh, in support of Coinbase's, um, the, the thing that they did in the appellate court is called a writ, a writ of mandamus. They're asking the court for an order. Um, and we pointed out that Coinbase's petition for rulemaking was not the first one. In fact, it was the last in a long string of them going back to like 2017. People have been petitioning the SEC for rulemaking in the digital asset space since at least March of 2017. So there are like six or seven, and we laid them out in our brief, six or seven petitions. The SEC ignored all of them. Um, so we said, this is a problem that goes beyond Coinbase's petition. Uh, court, you should issue an order here. It's, and, and the court would be issuing an order not directing the SEC to make rules, just directing the SEC to respond to Coinbase's petition for rulemaking. So yes or no. So the the latest bit is the SEC uh, responded uh, either late yesterday or early this morning. And they, I mean, I don't want to malign their response too much, but basically they said, hey, what are you talking about? We've been really busy on this. We've uh, you know sought public comment on rules, blah, 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 blah. What they didn't say was, we did respond to Coinbase's petition for rulemaking, or we're going to respond to Coinbase's petition for rulemaking. They just said, kind of, we're busy. We'll get, you know, we're working on it. Um, that doesn't really meet their burden of what they have to do when someone petitions for rulemaking. All they need to do is say yes or no. You know, yes, we'll make rule make and we'll make some rules, or no, we won't. Um, so we'll see what the court does. It's uh, it's fascinating. And, and sorry to go off on this, but it's fresh in my mind. The SEC's failure to respond to rulemaking petitions is not limited to the digital assets cryptocurrency space. Sure. If you go on their site and see all these other rule petitions for other stuff. In fact, I can't submit a rule petition on a non-digital currencies topic last year. We haven't heard anything back. 
Um, somebody did a study in um, uh, in a Yale uh, law journal that pointed out that since 2018, there have been something like 65 rule petitions, and the SEC has responded to something like three. Uh, I may not have those numbers exactly right, but the the fact is the SEC just kind of ignores these rule petitions. They kind of go into a black hole and you never hear anything about them. So that, that's what's an issue in the Coinbase. Uh, and so then what's the point? Like What's the point? That that's so frustrating, right? Because they're supposed to be public servants to some degree, correct? I mean, they're supposed to yeah. be able to answer these things and they can intentionally just endlessly kick the can down the road and yeah. do nothing. I mean, and I have to assume that that's on taxpayer dollars, right? It is. It is. And, uh, you know, a cynical person might say it's um, furtherance of their strategic ambiguity strategy, but... Um, but that wouldn't not- be you. That wouldn't be me. That would no, be somebody else. No, not, not, not the guy who worked at the SEC. No, for sure right. not him. <laughs> so, uh, but then where does that leave Coinbase, do you think? I, they're clearly not going to get an answer on that, right? I think it's very clear yeah. strategic ambiguity is going to continue, but this is a battle that's brewing. Something bigger is coming. Yeah, the, the writ will get resolved when the judge uh, decides whether to order the SEC to respond to the rulemaking petition. Or the judge might say, no, the SEC should t- be able to take its time and doesn't need to respond. So, but that that will resolve itself totally independent of everything else that Coinbase has going on. It's it's sort of a parallel track that uh um won't impact the other things that Coinbase has been talking about vis-a-vis the SEC. What would you say, any of you, is the I guess best and worst case scenario for Coinbase if enforcement action comes? That might be one we want to stay away from. <laughs> so uh, no problem. Uh, I just uh, you know, I, and, and uh, theoretically, what what action do you think would, based on what we've seen against other companies, what do you think the SEC would potentially do? Is it coming after them for unregistered securities? Is I mean, is that probably the most likely path? Looking at other actions, um, yeah, I mean, the SEC has a fairly well-defined toolkit. Um, so they're going to, they would ask for one of those obey the law injunctions and say, uh, you know, like, like they have done with regard to other entities, um, you have violated X, Y, and Z provisions. So do not do that in the future. Um, and that obviously would have a big impact on the business model. Um, and then, maybe monetary relief as well, but I think it's it's too early to tell. So I guess more generally, not specific to any of your clients, you kind of talked about at the beginning what kind of companies you're helping. Do you see an uptick in people still trying to operate in the United States? Or are you largely seeing them ask you how to get out of here and, and find a place where they could actually do what they're trying to do? So I still see a lot of US-based projects that are very active and, and they're kind of based here in the U.S. and, and building, but um, a lot more of them. And this has always been the case in crypto, but are kind of looking sort of, okay, a lot of our calls start with where should I where should I be, right? Where should like I The look? regulatory arbitrage, basically. Regulatory yeah. arbitrage, right? Which you would hope that for like a like a like an entrepreneur, they're focused on building their product, right? And kind of designing new great things that solve real problems. But spending a lot of resources and time thinking about whether I, you know, kind of have a, a Cayman foundation or, you know, kind of, you know, kind of what sorts of structures to put in place is not necessarily a great use of, use of resources when you can be focusing on other things. Yeah, it's a, it's a big like game, 
right? I mean, we all know that uh, there's ways to, you know, be efficient in taxes or regulatory arbitrage. As you said, you just have to have the money to be able to do it. I think it continues to come back to that. I mean, is there anything that your average person, your average crypto enthusiast, obviously you guys have a non-for-profit, is there anyone you can contact? I mean, how can people get become more activist about this in helping to change this process, making their voice heard? Because I think people feel very disheartened at this point, like they have no impact on political process in general, but certainly not for the crypto process. I mean, just calling the SEC work, just calling your senator work, what can we do? Um, one thing is that when the SEC releases a new rule, they do have a comment period. And so you could submit a comment letter and um, Nick would know more since he was there. But I do believe they read through all of them. And I think that social media is a big thing, too. I think that regulators are looking at people's tweets and trying to understand the general community. So I would say that like the SEC comment letters and speaking up on social media, well, things that are important to um, people is looked at. Now, just the comment letter process briefly um, is available. The staff does read the comment letters. And maybe, again, I'm a litigator. More importantly, the comment letters can provide a basis for later litigation to challenge rules. So um, that's interesting. It, it's very easy to submit a comment letter. It takes very little time. You do it online. So um, that is. Let's a, have ChatGPT do it. Right? Yeah. We go. get our AI to just start sending comment letters not, to every uh, SEC enforcement. Probably and, already happens. I'm not going to lie. I've, I've already done that to like all of Congress. <laughs> well, and I would add, you know, even like the comment letter, like that actually does, we've seen it result in changes, right? Because the SEC puts out a proposal, they don't think of everything, right? And, um, you know, sometimes you can shape things in a way that is sort of more responsible. I think talking to, to, uh, elected representatives matters, right? I think the fact that there is a little bit more of a diversity of views in Congress now is a product of people taking the time and effort um, and, and political donations to have their views heard. I think that matters. The other thing I think is an important narrative that gets lost. I mean, there's a lot of focus on the financial aspects of crypto, right? And um, sometimes in all that noise and kind of excitement, the actual use cases, what what it what, what are we doing that is better than what's been done before and kind of communicating like real world things that are happening and supporting that with with actual data, I think is really important, too. Right. And I know there are a number of academics that are focused on that. Right. And and others who are trying to get that message out uh, as, as well. I think that's really important part of the narrative that it's not just all about the financial aspects of this. That it's really about how is this making the world a better place? Focusing on the technology and utility right. to some degree, exactly. which does get lost, I think, because most people come into the space looking for a winning lottery ticket, frankly, you know, and I think we all understand that. And that's probably the perception of the regulator and one that we really need to change. Yeah. I mean, I think even the fact that the biggest cases are, is an exchange, right? <laughs> which is, you know, I guess Ripple is pretty, pretty big, but, uh, oh, do we have any idea when we'll actually get a uh, answer on the Ripple case? Do you guys have any idea? So we've got pending cross motions for summary judgment that have been pending for a long time. And it's really, there is no outside deadline for the judge. Um, it's really up to the judge. And I have had cases where summary judgment motions have been pending for months and months and months. So I think we're, we're close. I mean, I don't remember when they filed the cross motions, but um, it's it's been a long time. So I I would say we're, you know, we're getting close, a couple of months. 
but it's totally up to the judge's discretion. The Ripple case is a good example, by the way. You were saying, you know, what can individual uh, participants in this space do? It's not easy to do this, but in the Ripple case, I think it's been very effective that holders of the XRP token have tried to have their voice heard in that case. Because in every SEC case, you've got the SEC that purports to be looking out for investors' interests, and you've got the defendants who the SEC has accused of doing something wrong. What you don't have is actual representation by the investors. And in fact, the SEC discourages that and tries to keep people out of those cases. And there are ways to get your voice heard in those cases. It's not uh, super easy, but it's also not impossible. So I would encourage people, if they are involved in uh, the tokens that are at issue in a particular case, to look for a way to have the judge hear their voice directly. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting parts about the library credits library case was the fact that the they made it clear actually that the secondary sales was not of a security. That seems like an interesting, I don't want to call it a loophole or precedent though, that could be used in the future to help support some of these cases for the crypto industry. Well, that, that's why it'll be really interesting to see what the judge does in the library case, because um, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning of this piece, the the SEC has now given its position on what the judge should do in terms of entering a final injunction. Um, the judge seemed at, at some of the hearings very reluctant to just have a blanket injunction that could impact secondary market transactions that might be consumptive, not investing related. They could be just unrelated to the original um, distribution of the tokens in that case. So um, that is definitely a case to watch in terms of an impact on the secondary markets. How meaningful is this Ripple decision, do you think, for the industry? Any of you can answer. Well, I'll say, having seen how the SEC treats uh, losses in other areas, the SEC will immediately say, well, that's limited to the facts in that case. So it's a one-off, has no relevance whatsoever. The rest of the world will have a different view. And obviously, I think it it, it, it depends. I mean, the judge will, uh, because it's on summary judgment, which means that the facts have been fully laid out for the judge, the judge will likely, the order will be detailed both factually and legally. And so I think there will be things in there that, that everyone will want to use. But the SEC's reaction will be, well, it's just, it's that token, that case, and shouldn't apply it elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, one of the other big cases, obviously, was Grayscale or GBTC going after, I guess, the SEC, uh, you know, with their ETF. And the judge pushed back heavily and immediately everyone said, well, even if Grayscale wins, they could kind of lose and maybe that'll hurt the futures ETF. It just seems like it's odd. There's so many ways, even if the SEC loses a case, that they can skin it as something very, very specific and sort of pigeonhole it without it applying to everything. I just don't know how we win then. I literally, it just feels like you just wait till there's a different SEC and hope for the best. I mean, it's true for like the digital asset, the, the decisions on that, it is so specific sometimes to a digital asset. Like every token has a different design, has made different marketing statements, maybe has certain features of passive income or governance. The token holders maybe are active with that governance feature or not. So it is sometimes tough to say that one ruling is applicable to other. Um, it's, I think it's easier. And as Nick said, it's kind of determining on like what people are going to think of the decision, but right. there are also really specific factors to each project that you'll need to 
say that your project is similar to to make that decision applicable to your project. Right. right. And the irony is the flip side of that is that the SEC just wants to say everything's a security, but you just describe the nuance of why they would theoretically have to look at each and every one to determine that. <laughs> yeah. On the grayscale matter, which, by the way, uh, Lisa was the primary drafter of our amicus brief in support of that petition. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, sort of in response to your comment, Scott, that, that grayscale could win there, but still ultimately, you know, win the battle, but lose the war. The SEC could go back and, and reconsider. That might be one outcome if the appellate court orders them to do that. Um, but I do think it's important for the industry to the extent people are able to, every time the SEC acts arbitrarily, which is what they did in denying Grayscale's application while granting uh, applications of roughly equivalent other products, I think they need to be called out. I think it's important um, to take each battle in turn and, um, you know, hold the SEC to um, its regulatory obligations. I agree. Listen, I know we're up against theoretical time, so I don't know if you guys are done. But is there anything that I missed that uh, may be worth getting a last uh, discussion in or a last comment? Because I certainly can't cover it all. You guys are doing a lot. I think we did a pretty good uh, coverage of the water. Wow, that, the, the, the silence there made me feel like <laughs> I did a really great job, to be quite you honest. Did a great so, job. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Well, thank you, Nick, Lisa, Eric. Uh, I should say, so if anybody is actually looking to take on one of these fights or to get clarity uh, where can they contact you for your help uh because clearly there's not many people that know what they're doing in this space and you guys seem to be dominating <laughs> well it's easy to find us at our paul hastings that's the name of our law firm paulhastings.com uh you can find us there and uh, the nonprofit, if anyone's interested is icanlaw.org Icanlaw.org. Everybody go check that out. Thank you guys so much for your time. It's really uh, enlightening and it gives me some hope that somebody's fighting for us who knows what they're doing. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Scott. Let's go.